This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman. And Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at Kevin Couchman and at Brad Kelly. All right, we're back with another episode of Art of Darkness. Brad, how are you? Doing well, Kevin. How are you? I am doing well i am sitting here noticing my body i am planting my feet firmly on the ground Mm -hmm. not in a narcissistic way i am actively attempting not to be food for the moon that's an odd thing to do (laughs) i want you to (laughs) buckle up and prepare for an evening for whenever you're listening to this, for an hour, maybe maybe a little more than an hour of some real far out wackadoo stuff. Oh, <laughs> because, that's right because, in my alley. Yeah, this episode is about George Ivanovich Gurdjieff, uh, and you may know him <laughs> from such hits, including <laughs> <laughs> including the uh, the Enneagram or the Enneagram or Enneagram or whatever, uh, you hear it pronounced all sorts of different ways, but it's the, yeah. this sort of famous personality type uh, symbol, uh, although Gurdjieff was not really using it in the astrological woo-woo sort of way. It's a little more technical, his, his um, originating of it, but he is the father of the Enneagram. Okay, uh, I did not know that. Right, yeah. right, and of course, we start every episode of uh, of Art of Darkness with with a question uh, for for the other host. Uh, since since I'm leading our our mission against the moon tonight, uh, uh, Brad, what do you know about Gurdjieff? Uh, uh, Gurdjieff uh, from somewhere where a last name like Ivanovich or a last name like Gurdjieff and a middle name like Ivanovich makes sense, so. Eastern Europe someplace, turn of the born turn of the century or before, uh, kind of a spiritual leader. Uh, you know, I think he gets mentioned in the same breath as people like H.P. H. P. Blavatsky. Uh, right. But I don't know if there's really a relationship there or it's just that they're both very kind of occult, somewhat mysterious figures. Um, right. The the current Theosophy Society has some interest in Gurdjieff. Uh, mm-hmm. Madame Blavatsky and Ger- uh, Gurdjieff never met. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. Although Gurdjieff and Crowley, uh, who we will eventually do an episode yeah, uh, yeah. on, did famously meet, and we oh will gosh. talk about that a little later in this episode. Oh, wow. Okay, so now I know that about him. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I had a bit of a... Uh, not maybe a cult, but definitely had followers to some extent, is my understanding. Kind of a world traveler guy. And from what I remember about listening to him, uh, about listen, mostly listening to people talk about him in podcasts and things, uh, was nobody really knew. It didn't seem like anybody knew where he came from in some ways. It was sort of just like appeared on the scene and kind of bounced around. And there was He's almost been called that. the trickster saint. 
Okay. Uh, okay. And his, his path has been called the path of the sly one. Huh. Uh, Interesting. Because, of course, he is the originator of the idea of the fourth way. So okay. in his cosmology or his, his psychology, really, there's the way of the fakir, the way of the yogi, and the way of the monk. And the fakir okay. masters his body, the yogi masters his emotions, and the monk masters his intellect. And mm-hmm. the Gurdjieffian fourth way is the syncretic uh, combination okay. of them all for the man or woman, the person, the, the, the sentient creature who desires to stay within the world and develop a spiritual practice within the world. Okay. That's so the, he, mm. He's not trying to reincarnate or, or stave off reincarnation or uh, get to heaven. Well, he is concerned, uh, and this episode is going to take us through the life of Gurdjieff, but I'm going to intersperse it with uh, content about his okay. crazy ideas, okay, which I think okay. are wonderful. I've been yeah. a kind of a closet Gurdjieffian uh, for now, uh, coming, coming on 20 years. Yeah. Uh, I got to give a shout out to Mr. Slater, a friend of the show who mm-hmm. is a musician. He, he sent me a little bit of music, and I might... In fact, I am going to use one of his uh, his pieces at the end oh, of yeah. the episode uh, because he he's a, he uh, he turned me on to Gurdjieff many 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 years ago uh, when we we met over here in Minneapolis, um, and uh, yeah, so Gurdjieff's ideas there are some really fascinating kernels inside this stuff. Uh, many years ago, I read the great thirteen hundred page. Uh, Bezelbub's Tales to His Grandson, mm. uh, Meetings with Remarkable Men, all of this stuff, and we'll kind of get into it. Uh, yeah, Gurdjieff, his, his uh, ideas are wonderful. So my hope is that coming out of this uh, rough hour, people have an idea of the life of the man, but also some of the ideas of the man. Okay. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm interested in both of those things. So let's, yeah. Let's yeah. In. All right. So let's <laughs> dig in. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start uh, at the beginning here. Uh, now, one of the reference texts that I have is um, is quite a good book if you want to uh, get into Gurdjieff without reading Gurdjieff himself, which you may want to do because his writing is um, nay but incomprehensible. Uh, <laughs> it It's intended to be difficult to read. Is it, he, is it difficult because it's like poetic or because it's like academic? It's difficult because it's, he intended it to be difficult. I see. Okay. And he wrote it in Russian uh, yeah. and... Well, I believe he wrote in Russian. Then, of course, it was translated, and he was very strict with the translation. It's circuitous. It repeats. He, of his work, he, he, he said that he wanted people to read it three times. Um, <laughs> once, once sort of, and I'm, I'm not sure this is the exact pattern he said, but like once sort of like naturally, mm-hmm. once very, very sentence by sentence, and then once for the overall meaning, something to that effect. Huh, okay. He was... He was extraordinarily difficult, Gurdjieff. Uh, he, 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 would, he would find, hmm, how to say this? There was a different Gurdjieff for every single person who met Gurdjieff. Oh, okay, yeah. And he was a master of this stuff. Uh, so if you would that's, come to- mm-hmm. That's often said about a lot of gurus. This, they were a different person to each person, right? Yeah. Right, yeah. yes. Um, so let's, let's dig into the biography just a little bit. I'm looking for my notes here. So he was born, uh, dates vary. But see, and this is this is one of the key things about the Gurdjieff biography is that everything prior to his arriving in St. Petersburg uh, in the early part of the 20th century is apocryphal or somewhat 
auto auto mythical. Uh, so one of his one of his books, his biography, uh, uh, meetings with remarkable men, uh, which we'll talk a little bit about later, uh, is is a biography, but it's pretty widely regarded as a lot of hooey. Okay. Uh, it's not entirely clear what's true, who's a real character, what's allegory. Did he ever actually go to Tibet and study mm-hmm. with the Tibetan masters? We don't really know. But once he arrives in St. Petersburg, we do have more history. Uh, okay. um, so the, the birth date is sometime in the 1860s and the 1870s. He was born. Oh, and I have to give a, um, a preface here or a, a warning. Name pronunciations here are going to be... <laughs> Butchery. Perfect. Oh, uh, this is <laughs> what they, it's, this is an abattoir of, of pain here. Um, yeah, you know, I, I am but a but a mere uh, you know North Dakotan trying yeah. to you know. I put, well, I I tell you, dude, every time I went to tweet about Gurdjieff, I had to look up how to spell it every single. I I knew, yeah. but I wasn't had zero confidence. I think I can do it. G U R D J I E F F. Gurdjieff. Yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. right. Uh, <laughs> and is it's one of those like Nietzsche. You go, oh yeah. god. Um, so he was born in Alan's Alexandropol, and he his uh, mother was Armenian. His father was Greek, uh, so he's Greek Armenian. Um, and we have some some history here. So this is sort of an overall look. Uh, he was a Russian philosopher, mystic, spiritual teacher, and composer of Armenian and Greek descent, born in Alexandropol in the Russian Empire, which is now Gumri, Armenia. Uh, Gurdjieff taught that uh, most humans do not possess a unified consciousness and thus live their lives in a state of hypnotic waking sleep, but that it is possible to awaken to a higher state of consciousness and achieve full human potential. He described a method attempting to do so. He called this discipline the work with a capital W or the system with a capital S. Uh, oh, and the other thing is, we're definitely right. This may be our first cult leader. This is definitely <laughs> right right yeah. next door to, 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 is this a cult? Mm, right, isn't it a cult? Right. Ba, ba, ba. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, he, lots of people even now really ascribe to the fourth way. You can find a fourth mm-hmm. way group in your, in your um, city if you're in a city of any side, uh, size. In any event, Gurdjieff's method for awakening one's consciousness unites the methods of the, the, the fakir, the monk, and the yogi, and thus he referred to it as the fourth way. Gurdjieff himself uh, described his father uh, thus. Oh, before, you see, I, I need to mention this. One of the texts that I am um, referencing here uh, is um, from the Dehartmans. The, the, uh, Tomas and Olga Dehartman uh, were, I believe they were Russians, um, DeHartman was the court composer to the czar uh, and he was oh, wow. in the winter palace when the revolution kicked off. He was one of uh, Gurdjieff's uh, major students. They wrote um, a wonderful biography called Our Life with Mr. Gurdjieff. And from that, um, this is drawn and this is Gurdjieff mm-hmm. speaking. Um, and I'll come back to that often. That is, that is a book I really recommend. It's um, a very accessible introduction to sort of Gurdjieff as, as a, phenomenon. Um, and of course, if you also go on Spotify or YouTube or anywhere, you can look up Gurdjieff DeHartman music and you can find the music um, to which 
uh, Gurdjieff's sacred dances were set and all the rest of it. It's actually very lovely music. It sort of sounds like um, central, uh, you know, sort of rather East a uh, Eastern Europe, Central Asia, kind of this um, sort of warm, dark, kind of somewhat mysterious, I suppose what we would say sort of oriental sounding tones, right? Mm -hmm. um, the Near East kind of a vibe. Um, all right, so Gurdjieff, of his father, he said, my father was widely known as an Ashok, the name given everywhere in Asia and the Balkan Peninsula to the local bards who composed, recited, or sang poems, songs, legends, folk tales, and all sorts of stories. So a podcaster of his time. <laughs> uh, he was often invited to evening gatherings to which many people who knew him came in, in order to hear his songs and stor uh, stories and songs. At these gatherings, he would recite one of the many legends or poems he knew according to the choice of those present, or he would render in song the dialogues between the different characters. The whole night would sometimes not uh, be long enough for finishing a story and the audience would meet again on the following evening. What a cool job. I don't know if that's his job exactly, mm. but what a cool social role to have. Mm -hmm. I feel like we really have something quite like that. I mean, mm. yeah, well, we don't rely on other individuals as much for our entertainment anymore, I guess, but. Yeah, not in that immediate embodied way. Again, I wasn't joking about the podcasting, right? Right, right, There's, right. Who knows, in the future, you know, 500 years from now, somebody might re be reading the biography of uh, Joe Rogan's children and go, his father was a, <laughs> right. was yeah. a podcaster yeah, who exactly. did this and entertained. So yeah. it, it's changed somewhat. But yes, there's an immediacy that's lost. And that's actually really central to the... Um, to I think Gurdjieff's style. One of the one of his major claims was that he aimed to unite the wisdom of the East with the energy of the West. Okay. That was one of his okay. his key uh, goals. And so he has what you could call this Eastern origin. Uh, and this is really well covered in the biography, which was published posthumously. Um, meetings with with remarkable men. Uh, there's a film, Meetings with, with Remarkable Men. It's not the greatest film ever made. Um, you know, it's interesting that there's a bit of a, a theater. It's like, a, it's like yeah. a biopic? Uh, yeah, it's a biopic based on uh, Gurdjieff's book of the same name. Right. Uh, and, you know, it gets, it, it, it's perfectly watchable. Um, there's a very interesting, interesting connection to the theater. Uh, a great, one of the great um, British theater artists, Peter Brook, directed it. Brooke is a, is a Gurdjieff and uh, Brooke wrote a, a great book on theater called The Empty Space. That's like one of the kind of seminal go-to modern theater books. Um, and he's a, he, he was or is or was a Gurdjieffin? Yeah, I think, uh, I don't know if Peter Brooke is still with us. I think he may. No, he's still, he's still with us. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, so he's, he certainly has some interest in Gurdjieff. He was approached yeah. by uh, a woman named Jean DeSaltzman. Um, this is a thing about, about um, Gurdjieff too, is that we're definitely in the playground of the wealthy here. Sure. Uh, there, there's a story that Gurdjieff wanted to charge a pretty exorbitant sum of money to sit at his feet, and a few people paid it, uh, but he never turned anyone away for lack of money. Hmm. Nevertheless, uh, this is definitely, we're moving in, pretty elite circles here. This is like the Blavatsky kind of phenomenon where if you're, if you're working in a, uh, in a coal mine in Wales, you don't really have time right, uh, right. To, to flit off to France to study with, uh, you know, the man who then tells you to dig a ditch 
and then right. fill in the ditch the following week. Uh, it's like, I could is, have done this for money. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, a, a, a famous uh, saying from Gurdjieff, though, is that people don't value what they don't pay for. So this idea mm -hmm. that people, because some people will get offended. Oh, what kind of guru are you? You're asking for money. Right. Well, Gurdjieff says, again, people don't value what they don't yeah, that's, pay for. There's, some, there's some truth to that, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, so we're going we're gonna to fast forward a little bit, but Gurdjieff, uh, if we go... If we take meetings with remarkable men and its face value, Gurdjieff and a group of other fellow seekers who may in fact be uh, representations of, of different parts of Gurdjieff's psyche, there's okay. not a lot of this is backed up historically, right? It's like we have sort of have to take this man at his word. Uh, left home, traveled, went to Egypt, sought out this group, uh, gained access to some secret knowledge, uh, met with Sufis, possibly ended up in Tibet. Uh, there's mm -hmm. some rumors that there may have been some some spying happening. There's always, mm -hmm. that's this is another thing. There's always like the, the hint that like anybody who traveled this widely at that period. Yeah, there's a, probably a spy. Yeah. yeah, there's always like a, mm, somebody will, <laughs> will levy that. I don't know how much truth there is to it. Um, so this would have been like what, mm -hmm. the 1890s? Yeah, if he was, correct. Yeah, the, at, right at the cusp of the, of the, 20th century. Okay. okay. Yes. So pre-war. Um, so, and, you know, if you watch Meetings with Remarkable Men, the film, it does end in these um, wonderful sacred dances that Gurdjieff um, brought to his, his students. Uh, and one of, again, one of his key things is that, wow, the West is just way too intellectually focused. We think mm -hmm. of development as intellectual development. And, and in fact, there's, there's a holistic, um, uh, system. So uh, it's saying here uh, in early adulthood, according to his own account, uh, mm -hmm. he led him, it led him to travel in Central Asia, Egypt, Iran, India, Tibet, and Rome before he returned to Russia for a few years in 1912. Um, he, uh, he made himself rich. He arrived, if I'm, if I'm to understand it, by the time he arrived uh, in, back in Russia, in St. Petersburg, um, in 1914, he was he was wealthy, independently wealthy. Uh, however, that would not last. Um, briefly on his business career, it's saying on his reappearance, as far as the historical record is concerned, he had become a businessman. There's a fun story here too, uh, which they show in the um, uh, in the meetings uh, with remarkable men film, where he he and his uh, friends they need to gather five rubles or whatever it is. So he paints uh, a sparrow uh, with bright colors and goes to the marketplace and calls it an American canary and sells it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's pretty slick. So that's a good show title. Maybe Gurdjieff's American canary. Yeah, okay. uh, <laughs> so, we're, you know, we're dealing with somebody who sort of admittedly likes, likes tricks and games and kind of messing mm. with people and, and uh, he, he uh, trained himself as a hypnotist uh, along the way. Okay, and yeah. one of the ways that he would make money is he would endeavor to cure uh, addiction, alcoholism, et cetera, with his, his hypnosis, of course. And people would remark upon how, how striking he is. Uh, if yeah, you, he if is you, a striking looking guy, yes. These yeah. eyes and this yeah. bald pate mm -hmm. uh, and this mustache 
that mm-hmm. you know you, you could ride down the store to the store for a gallon of milk you know <laughs> like just this big booming mustache and these mm-hmm. eyes and he he absolutely played with that look uh yeah. to great effect um so you can imagine he would strike different people different ways for sure, sure. Yeah. um i'm gonna just take a minute because we're bringing him into russia and and saint petersburg he's he, he mm-hmm, go sorry ahead. this is where we would start to actually know legitimate biographical info about him right yeah right right and what a joy to be from the middle of nowhere to be extremely intelligent and be able to to be able to come to the west uh from the frontier and claim that you have ancient wisdom from the east (laughs) right right in your thick accent yeah and europe was on fire for the wisdom of egypt at this time too this is this is uh golden uh the order of the golden dawn time Mm. like it was it was uh that's when all this was popping off. That was like, um, I can't even quite think of an analogy, but it was like the various phases for like Buddhism and Hinduism and yoga that we have in America now. Absolutely. Like, ooh, wisdom from e- Egypt. Right. So, Orientalism. This, right. this so idea he of... Right, he was hitting the right time. <laughs> absolutely. And uh, you got to make a buck and you, and you got to get by. I want to pause and read a few quotes from him. Uh, as I did with the Oscar Wilde episode, I sort of think that's a good way to break up the timeline. Um, here, here's a quote. A man will renounce any pleasures you like, but he will not give up his suffering. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Here's a good one. Uh, if you want to lose your faith, make friends with a priest. um this is quite dull here's one though uh i like this one a sin is something which is not necessary so there's this idea of beveling and honing he's he'd be quite severe i've been dwelling with this uh the the gurdjieff media for a week and it's very turgid and intense and all the rest of it and i find him very very humorous when you read him he's being quite funny big drinker he loved armagnac uh we're gonna come to that um uh, a little bit later when we toast we're gonna we're gonna toast the 21 idiots tonight oh okay Uh, on that's this sounds, very on this very episode, I think so, I did that yesterday. But. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the things he liked to do. So um, okay, so he arrives in in Russia. Um, you know, he's he's been a successful uh, businessman somehow, uh, trading schemes. Right. Uh, you know, right? And so the chronology from 1913 to 49 appears to be based on material that can be confirmed by primary documents, uh, witnesses cross-referencing. So he arrived on New Year's Day in 1912 in Moscow and attracted his first students, including his cousin, the sculptor Sergei Merkurov and the eccentric Marach Milovich. In the same year, he married the Polish Julia Ostrowska in St. Petersburg. Uh, In 1914, he advertised a a ballet called The Struggle of the Magicians, uh, and he supervised his pupils' writing of the sketch "Glimpses of Truth." So he arrives in Russia fully formed as yeah. this guru type. I am right. a teacher from the East, and I have come uh, right. to to help you awaken. Now, of course, there's a tremendous turmoil brewing. People are looking for, you know, God is dead, as Nietzsche declared, uh, and we need to find a way to live in the world. Uh, and the world, of course, as we know, going from 1914 into, ni- into ni- 1915 is 
quite literally yeah, going to be set coming, on fire. Going to come apart. Yeah. Right. This is one of the reasons I highly recommend the DeHartman biography, because whatever you think about Gurdjieff, whether you think he's a complete con artist or not, or if there's any value to his ideas, there's no question he did help the DeHartmans escape the, Bol- the Bolsheviks, the revolution. Okay. They literally marched through the Caucasus Whoa. on foot to, as refugees to get out. Wow. So this was a competent man. This was a, yeah. a well-traveled, competent uh, huh. bull of a yeah. man who could get yeah. it done. Um, so he, he accepted uh, P.D. Uspensky as a, a pupil in 1915. Now, we could do an entire episode on Uspensky. and maybe one name. day. Mm-hmm. Down yeah. the line, we will. Uspensky had already written a book called Tertium Organum, uh, which wa- had made him famous in, in Russia. So he was already kind of an existing mystic in his, in his own right. But he acknowledged Gurdjieff as a master and uh, huh. became his pupil. And in fact, it's through... Um, Uspensky that we actually have the Enneagram formalized as a, as a Gurdjieffian construct. Oh, interesting. Uh, okay. Yeah. If you want to pick up an interesting book, that's an introduction to the Gurdjieff ideas. Uh, In Search of the Miraculous is the Uspensky tome uh, okay. of, of, the, of the Gurdjieff material. Another one that I'm really interested in that came, that comes much later, and this is maybe something that we should, um, I should mention now about Gurdjieff and the work. People trace themselves back like, jujitsu students to the original master in the Gurdjieff work. So there's a Spensky, there's a Raj, there's Bennett. There are these different offshoots of the work. Yeah, and if you, lineages, right? Yeah, yeah. lineages. Yeah. If you find yourself a good, solid, fourth-way boomer right now, they're going to tell you who their teacher was, who that teacher's teacher was. And I, yeah. I personally quite appreciate that. No, there's something cool to that. There's a, there's a, an attempt to, to, especially I feel like if you're playing around with these very syncretic ideas, there's got to be an attempt to try and rein that process in even slightly because otherwise your brain's going to fall out and you're going to believe in everything. Mm-hmm. Right? So, so having that lineage is probably some way you've kind of got this chaotic ground of different ideas. It's some way to establish a tradition of some mm-hmm. sort. I yeah. think that there is a bit of pride to it too. And of course it can end up being this kind of chimp out monkey ego game as oh, well. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but nevertheless, there's something about kind of trying to actually tie this back to reality. And mm-hmm. uh, there's some pride in this too. Gurdjieff's work was not easy. It's not easy. The capital W work is not simple. Yeah. It's not meant to be. Uh, it, it's meant to cause stress and strain and it's inside the, the very practice of self-denial um, and self-noticing that the so-called shocks are delivered that allows the person in the Gurdjieff work to quite literally develop their soul, according mm. to Gurdjieff. So he wasn't, okay. when we're getting into one of his core ideas, I may as well talk about it. Um, according to Gurdjieff, I mean, it, it, it's funny um, uh, because people kind of discover the, their ideas on their own, these ideas on their own. Gurdjieff really quite, um, actually talks about non-player characters, people who are just really? in the physical body, driven by the physical body, and that the the astral body, so there are multiple bodies, the astral body is, is quite literally something that has to be built through practice. Hmm. Um, and it can be lost and all the rest of it. I find sure. these, these ideas fascinating, the notion that a soul is something that has to be, has to be constructed. Yeah, um, no, I, I, that... I, I've come across that idea and I don't know if it was through him or somewhere else, but that it was always very striking to me. 
that notion that it was something that had to be developed and whether you start with nothing or you start with just a, you know, a grain of sand or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that, that kind of the journey of your life is to, to try and cultivate that. It's a pretty cool idea. It's, it's very interesting and it's actually quite radical uh, mm -hmm. in, in its own right. As is the idea that man is asleep. Man is an automaton, a machine that must be awakened. We take that for granted because now that's pop culture. Right, uh, right. But certainly that was not, the case at the time. These are pretty radical, yeah. radical ideas. Um, and they become so mainstream that we take them for granted, but it's worth and pausing to consider. They don't fit in well with the major religions either. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know, there's probably, he probably has some overlaps, but that's not so far. Nothing you're saying is say a Christian idea or a Jewish idea or a uh, Muslim idea. Gurdjieff uh, himself described his work as esoteric Christianity. Uh, okay. Okay. But that's not, that's not all it was. There's also Sufism in it. There's a kind of okay. mystic quality to it. He was obsessed with the, the law of three and the law of mm -hmm. seven. Okay. Uh, and the Enneagram kind of shows that. If you look at the Enneagram, it's nine points, but it's uh, a triangle, the law of three, and then there's a seven-sided star, and one of the points is shared. If I'm not mistaken, um, okay. I need okay. to look at it again. But the... Um, yeah, and so rule of three, the Trinity, rule of seven, he called it in Bezalbub's Tales to his grandson, he called it the, the, the sacred, sacred law of Heptaparaparshanak. Oh, well, um, clearly. <laughs> so, <laughs> and we haven't even talked about the Kunda buffer. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll get to the Kunda buffer. Um, yeah, so right, yeah, so there you go, the, the, the Enneagram. Let me look at this because I need to look at it again here. It's one. Oh, we should have taken two, three, four, Enneagram five, six, quizzes before eight, we did no, the show. Yeah, no, no, it's not like that. It's it, the Enneagram is not really, according to Gurdjieff, that it's more about a, a symbol of uh, processes and okay. moving up and down different scales. So no, it's a it's a triangle and then it's a nine pointed star, but it's quite unusual. Um, mm -hmm. If you've never seen the Enneagram, maybe take a moment and uh, and look it up. Um, it's worth sort of having as a point of reference. So um, trying to move forward in the biography. Um, in 1916, he met Tomas uh, DeHartman and, and DeHartman's wife, Olga. He took them on as students. At that point, he had 30 pupils. Um, and again, Ospensky had already had this reputation. He had gone uh, on his own to the East um, to find wisdom, and he was disappointed. So wisdom landed on his doorstep uh, in the, mm. the form of the, the bald uh, Mr. Gurdjieff, or Mr. G, as they like to call him sometimes. Mm. Um so now we arrive at the revolution. So in the middle of the, the revolution, uh, Gurdjieff left Petrograd in 1917, uh, returned home. Uh, during the Bolshevik revolution, he set up a study, he set up uh, study communities. Um, this was his thing too. If you really very seriously get into the Gurdjieff work, you find a group. Work mm. is done in groups. Uh, mm. You can do it on your own as well, some of these practices, but really if you want to be a serious Gurdjieff and you join a group. So I'm going to have to ask you at some point, like, what is an example of the work? But we don't have to do that right now. Well, the work, right, we'll get to that. But okay. uh, one very common uh, practice, like the starting practice is quite literally self-noticing. Am mm -hmm. I awake? Am I asleep? Bring yourself back into your body. Mm -hmm. Notice your body. Mm -hmm. I've been doing all th this all week, and it's exhausting. <laughs> It is yeah. exhausting. It takes effort. Mm -hmm. um, and according to Gurdjieff, this effort, this is what develops your, your aura, your mm -hmm. soul, your uh, magnetism. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's some, there's a podcast, I think the Hermitrix podcast. He had a guest mm-hmm. on uh, who wrote a book about um, Mesmer. Uh, Mesmer, Mesmer, yeah, Anger, Jeff kind of. Mm-hmm. So there's this idea of like animal magnetism and people definitely ascribe that to Gurdjieff. This was okay. someone who people wanted to follow. He was a Chad uh, <laughs> with a big mustache. Nice. nice. Um, so uh, he worked with his Russian pupils um, in March of 1918. Uh, Spensky separated from Gurdjieff. Um, Spensky went to England. Then the relationship was pretty ambivalent. Uh, later, Gurdjieff's sister and her family found him in Essentucky, Essentucky, I don't know how to say it, as refugees. So now we're in this period where um, there's a lot of upheaval, upheaval and he yeah. hasn't really uh, settled in. So here I'm learning that the Turks had shot his father. Uh, it got, there was a civil war mm-hmm. happening. At one point, um, he fabricated a newspaper story announcing a forthcoming scientific expedition to Mount Induk, and he posed as a scientist. He left uh, Essentuki with 14 companions, and this is uh, his own family and Espensky, and they traveled by train. Hostilities delayed them for three weeks. So now we're in this adventure story. Right, yeah, this is wild. mm -hmm, You read the DeHartman book. This is, you know, forging papers, faking a scientific trip. We are trying to get out. in the spring of 1919, he met um, Alexandre de Saltzman, an artist, and his wife, uh, Jean. They, they came on as pupils, and it was through Jean de Saltzman that he gave his first public demonstration of the sacred dances, and that happened um, in Tbilisi. Okay. So here there's a period where he's um, in Georgia and Turkey, uh, and let's see here. It, it, in Istanbul, Gurdjieff uh, uh, met his future pupil, John Bennett, who was head of British military intelligence in Constantinople. Wow. So we're getting into this kind of, here we go, right? Um, yeah. he, he is moving with some very heavy-duty people, right? So you've got Tomas yeah. de Hartman, uh, who had made his debut uh, years earlier before the czar, um, a woman named Olga Ivanovna Hinzenberg, who would become Frank Lord, Lloyd Wright's wife. Okay. You know, meets him, practices uh, oh. his dances, etc. cetera. Um, it's in 1919 that he establishes what is going to be kind of the anchor of his life, though, like his life work in the most holistic way. He called it the Institute for the Harmonious Development of Man. So okay. this is the guy, this guy has big dreams. He is, yeah, he is yeah. the dude. He is founding yeah. an institute. Why? Because he says so. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so he meets, he meets John Bennett, who's British, British intelligence. Okay. And this yeah. is how Bennett described um, Gurdjieff. Um, it was there that I first met, first met Gurdjieff in the autumn of 1920 and no surroundings could have been more appropriate. In Gurdjieff, East and West do not just meet. Their difference is annihilated in a world outlook which knows no distinctions of race or creed. This was my first and has remained one of my strongest impressions. A Greek from the Caucasus, he spoke Turkish with an accent of unexpected purity, the accent that one associates with those born and bred in the narrow circle of the imperial court. His appearance was striking enough even in Turkey, 
where one saw many unusual types. His head was shaven, immense black mustache, eyes which at one moment seemed very pale and at another almost black. Below average height, he gave nevertheless an impression of great physical strength. Hmm. So this is a this is a man who uh, is British intelligence who is overwhelmed by Gurdjieff's right, right. Uh, charisma. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, so now we're going to arrive into Western Europe. So we're getting out of and this is sort of where he would spend much of the rest of his life. So uh, it was in August of twenty one. He traveled around Western Europe, lecturing, giving demonstrations. He went to Berlin. He went to London. Um, he tried to become a British citizen. He tried to settle in England, but they wouldn't have him. Is <laughs> <laughs> that Armenian blood, probably? Uh, who knows? Yeah. Uh, maybe just a little too many stamps of the passport. They didn't yeah, like it. It could be. So uh, I, I got to ask these dances. So mm-hmm. this is, he has like a dance troupe that's perform, like performing. Like what, what does that look like? Dances are part of the work. Okay. They're part of the group work if you get to be extremely serious about the the Gurdjieff method and my understanding of the dances and again you can see these at the very they're kind of the set piece ending of meetings with remarkable oh, men okay. mm-hmm. uh, where some of the dances actually are on the enneagram pattern if I'm not mistaken uh, and the idea is that you are you're going in one direction with one part of your body moving another part of your body another direction there's something like the Sufi dances there's something okay. like these mystic and they they uh, have encoded in them certain meanings and certain symbolism mm-hmm. that augments um, Gurdjieff's uh, ideas and teaching. And yeah. also it's about physical mastery uh, sure. and emotional mastery as well, because you have to, it's frustrating, I'm sure. Um, sure. And pe- but people would come to pay and sit in a theater and watch this? Okay. Okay. That's yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to this day, I'm sure when things uh, come back online, I'm sure if you really sought it out, you could find this. Uh, hmm. I know when we were in London uh, 15 years ago, uh, you know, we, we went to, to see some of the, the music, the Gurdjieff yeah. music played by a quartet. Uh, nice. It's out there. And, yeah. uh, you know, more people are into this and know about this than maybe you would think. It's, yeah. it's maybe not as fringe as you, as you might even like. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, <laughs> like, what is this? Yeah, um, so far I'm getting this thing where I'm very intrigued by him. But if somebody else was like a fanatic, I'd be like, well, hmm, I don't know what I think about you yet. But I don't know. Let's see where it goes. Yeah, no, exactly. I think it's sort of designed to do that too. Yeah. I, there is a certain cultic quality to it. Uh, and yet the ideas are, are pretty straight ahead as in, in as far as I'm describing them, they do get mm-hmm. to, uh, get pretty, pretty wackadoo. Um, mm-hmm. I think before we end up in, in France, um, I'd like to recount one of the core Gurdjieffian, uh, metaphors, which you may be familiar with. Uh, so in addition to saying that man is asleep, uh, Gurdjieff, like to use the the allegory of the the carriage, so he mm-hmm. describes man's uh, state as being like that of a carriage which is under disre- uh, disrepair, uh, with horses that are not properly fed, uh, a, uh, and a driver who is drunk trying to take a master uh, to some place, but he do- he isn't giving directions. That's our situation. <laughs> okay. okay, and the. The carriage is, is the body right. here. Um, the horses are the emotions. Uh, the driver is the intellect and the master mm-hmm. is the, the self, the, mm. 
the great eye, the big eye. Okay. Um, okay. Another one of Gurdjieff's core ideas is that man has many eyes um, in terms of like the letter I. The I. Okay. So yeah. you, and you identify with one eye, but other eyes are acting and this causes a tremendous amount of frustration. Sure, no, I've, no, I've, I vibe with that. That's uh, that pops up in the tarot over and over, over to that same same concept. So mm-hmm. I'm on board. Yeah, I think that's fascinating, and I like this idea of the of the different um, astral astral bodies. I want to see here on the fly if I can find a description of Gurdjieff and one of his um, noticing exercises. I find these. Um, fascinating they call them like sensing exercises so let me see here sensing exercises are preeminently associated with gurdjieff Uh, however these exercises are previously known in the hindu uh, tradition as the tantra practice of nyasa this is something about gurdjieff it's extremely syncretic he's pulling from here he's pulling from there to create this system yeah uh and and then marketing it and pitching it at under kind of the guru auspice um, as this Eastern way to help Western man kind of deal with um, the, the problems of the modern world. Now we have to remember too, in the story that I'm telling here of Gurdjieff's life, we fast forwarded through World War I, which was devastating, bloody, brutal, millions of people dead, everyone's shell-shocked. So whatever Gurdjieff has to offer now, the value has probably gone up um, yeah. exponentially, yeah. Uh, and we're gonna we're gonna see that. Um, so this is how they describe sensing. Uh, sensing refers to the ability to take in impressions generated in and by our physical center. These include the sensations of touch, pressure, heat, cold, position, and balance of our physical being. So the basic uh, the basic sensing exercise is take a comfortable position and become aware of your feet. Imagine you're being filled with a warm, thick, honey-like liquid and that it is slowly filling your body, starting from the feet and moving up to your legs, then pelvis, then torso, then arms, then chest, then head. Be aware of the sense of gravity pulling your body toward the ground. Be aware of the position of your limbs. Strive to maintain an awareness of sensing in the whole body. This requires your whole attention. Mm. It's a form of meditation. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think, it's fundamental use for someone like Gurdjieff is to try and drag the milieu that he's moving in out of their brains and into their bodies. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I mentioned this in passing before, there's a famous story about Gurdjieff at this Institute of the harmonious or of the harmonious development of man, which he established outside of Paris um, at a place called the Prior um, outside of Fontainebleau, uh, Mm -hmm. Fontainebleau, my, my French is terrible. Um, Mm -hmm he bought a mansion or he leased a mansion or some, right. some, but so, he, so again, he's landed in France. He has yeah. all the, you know, he, he very nearly became, uh, you know, uh, like a, a British uh, a resident in Britain yeah. got turned away. Oh, well, I'll yeah. settle outside of Paris. Yeah. What shall I do? I believe I'll start an Institute at this mansion. <laughs> <You're> right. <laughs> right. And he's, I assume it's just Jedi mind tricks up right. and down. I mean, he's right. talk, probably talking to one, one of his students. I mean, he knew yeah. rich, people. Mm -hmm. He had rich students. L. Ron Hubbard definitely comes from the Gurdjieff school of flim flam. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) We're, we're, you know, you, you, if you watched, um, the master, 
sure. we're, we're adjacent to that uh, mm-hmm. somehow here. And yeah, 40 years later or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and much like, uh, Gurdjieff, uh, L. Ron Hubbard would write this kind of wild science, sci-fi tale. Bezobub's grand, uh, tales to his grandson, which is, uh, Gurdjieff's magnum opus, uh, has Bezelbub as a creature who is benevolent on Mars with a telescope looking at humans on earth. It's, it's totally far out. Uh, <laughs> And it's metaphor. It's metaphor. Okay, it's not being yeah. literal, right? But, yeah. Uh, so we're we're in a <laughs> at the beginning of a line of hucksters that mm-hmm. takes us down to this day. Uh, one right. of the Scientologists down here in St. Paul own one of the big buildings down here. Sure. So we're 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 close to that. Um, in any case, uh, Gurdjieff at this point um, establishes uh, his uh, institute. Um, and uh, you know, you know, so he's outside of uh, he's outside of uh, Paris. Um, his life would be defined by by two major car accidents. Uh, there's a theory that he was drunk, possibly during one or both of them. Mm. Um, let me read a bit about his um, uh, his pupils and what he would do here. So. He took on uh, some more famous pupils, um, generally intellectual, middle-class types. Um, they would struggle. Ah, and this gets to one of the stories I wanted to tell. They would struggle with the what they call the Spartan accommodations of the priory or, what, or what, uh, whatnot. So, and it was set up this way intentionally, right? He would lure in people and then make it extremely difficult. Um, if someone would show up and and was an, an intellectual, a novelist, a professor, etc. There's one story where he he made one student who was very very hungry to sit in on the lectures that that he would give um, dig a ditch, and he, he had the person dig a ditch for a week, came back, looked at the ditch, and then said, "Fill in ditch," <laughs> and he made the person fill in the ditch, and only after that would the person be allowed into the lectures. Um, so he was trying to put into practice uh, the, this teaching that people need to develop physically, emotionally, and intellectually. So it was a mixture. It was this sort of like a, I mean, it was an institute, but almost like its own kind of monastery. You're definitely going away consciously working on a new way of being. Yeah. So it was lectures, it was music, it was dance, and it was manual labor. The, uh, the, I got to admit that the hard line part of that actually appeals to me a little bit. Like mm-hmm. it feels like... I mean, it could still all be BS, but like if you were shopping around for what uh, spiritual guru to follow, to me, actually, if he made me dig a ditch, I might disagree with it. But on some level, I'll be like, yeah, I kind of respect that. That's probably what I need to do. I just need to like break a sweat, get out of my head, do something that kind of sucks physically, and then you're ready to go. Right. You've just lived through the Great War. You've mm-hmm. lost friends, relatives. Maybe you've, you're going through a divorce. You're a mm-hmm. professor in, in Paris, and then this guy tells you to dig a ditch. And yeah. it's going to trigger, it's going to fire all your ego, all your, uh, your status stuff is going to get hit. And he would do yeah. that intentionally. He would, he would poke and prod at people. Yeah, that's, that's uh, I think this is a good point to talk about his notion of uh, – Man is a machine in a sleep. So this is Gurdjieff from a lecture. It's a bit long, but I'm going to read it. He, he said, in order to understand what the difference between states of consciousness is, let us return to the first state of consciousness, which is sleep. 
This is an entirely subjective state of consciousness. A man is immersed in dreams, whether he remembers them or not, does not matter. Even if some real impression impressions reach him, such as sounds, voices, warmth, cold, the, the sensation of his own body, they arouse in him only fantastic subjective images. Then a man wakes up. At first glance, this is a quite different state of consciousness. He can move, he can talk with other people, he can make calculations ahead, he can see danger and avoid it, and so on. It stands to reason that he is in a better position than when he was asleep. But if we go a little more deeply into things, if we take a look into his inner world, into his thoughts, into the causes of his actions, we shall see that he is in almost the same state as when he is asleep. And it is even worse because in sleep he is passive. That is, he cannot do anything. In the waking state, however, he can do something all the time and the results of all his actions will be reflected upon him or upon those around him. And yet he does not remember himself. He is a machine. Everything with him happens. He cannot stop the flow of his thoughts. He cannot control his imagination, his emotions, his attention. He lives in a subjective world of I love, I do not love, I like, I do not like, I want, I do not want. That is of what he thinks he likes, of what he thinks he does not like, of what he thinks he wants, of what he thinks he does not want. He does not see the real world. The real world is hidden from him by the wall of imagination. He lives in sleep. He is asleep. What is called clear consciousness is sleep and a far more dangerous sleep than sleep at night in bed. <laughs> so this is what you would sign up for and you'd hear, yeah. and he'd give this to probably in broken Russian, maybe translated yeah. or in French. Uh, and you're sitting yeah. there and it's 1925. Right. right. Uh, that's all very intriguing. The last bit where he's talking about clear consciousness is I, I was expecting clear consciousness to be a virtue, and then he posed, he po he placed that as da a dangerous state. I think that that's because he places it inside the intellect. Okay. Oh, yeah. I see. Oh, yeah. Clear consciousness is. Oh, I'm thinking everything through clearly here. Mm -hmm. I've seen. Yeah. Rash, over rationalizing, and okay. Yes, and so he's trying to find a way to to teach these Westerners, these over intellectual, over cerebral elite Westerners and middle-class Westerners that, that thinking is not, you're not thinking your way out of the sleeping state. Mm. It's a more holistic, uh, in his, in his writing, he talks about, um, how intelligence in the East is different, understood differently. Mm. Um, and I think that, that, that stuff is still useful. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. No, I'm like gradually finding out that I'm a Gurdjieffian. <laughs> like, like I already was. This is kind of weird. All right. Yeah, he's, he's, yeah, he's touched a lot more of the culture than you would think. Yeah. Uh, and if you start to study the 60s stuff, the hippie stuff, they all flirted with, with Mr. G. Everybody mm. touches on Mr. G at some point. Um, he comes up way more than you would think. Yeah. Um, Want to move forward in the bio just a little more, and then we'll, we'll spend some time talking about the ideas. Um, maybe next what we'll do is we'll toast the idiots. Okay. Um, so uh, this is a description uh, one of the pupils gave. Gurdjieff was standing by his bed in a state of what seemed to me to be completely uncontrolled fury. He was raging at Orage, who is, um, I believe, uh, one of his major English pupils, who stood impassively and very pale, framed in one of the windows. Suddenly, in the space of an instant, Gurdjieff's voice stopped. His whole personality changed. He gave me a broad smile, 
looking incredibly peaceful and inwardly quiet, motioned me to leave and then resumed his tirade with undiminished force. This happened so quickly that I do not believe that Mr. Oraj even noticed the breaking in the rhythm. <laughs> now we're going to get to um, uh, an anecdote or uh, more than an anecdote. Do you know who Catherine Mansfield was? An actress? No, she was a oh, um, Jane Mansfield. No, yeah, I don't know no, Catherine was. Mansfield was part of the the or adjacent to the Blooms, Bloomsbury Group in London. Okay. She's a uh, writer from uh, New Zealand um, okay. who went to London, um, and it was around this time in the twenties um, that Gurdjieff uh, achieved some no- notoriety as the man who killed Catherine Mansfield. Uh, she died in France at his institute um, under oh, his no. care of tuber- uh, tuberculosis on the mm. 9th of January in 1923. Um, now, this is contested, right? Someone like Gurdjieff is definitely going to accumulate a bit of shade at some point. Yeah, There's just too much sure. going on. What is this guy doing? Yeah. Uh, but people, Plus, like, mm-hmm. people were dropping dead of tuberculosis in that time, and uh, left and right. I mean, right. you right. get tuberculosis on your way to get the mail. I mean, it was... <laughs> Yeah, Different I think so. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the impression that uh, some of, of Gurdjieff's other other people now, obviously, they're probably biased, but they they argued that she knew she would soon die and that Gurdjieff made her last days happy. So, OK, yeah. uh, the, did he kill Mansfield? Probably not. But I think there was this idea that he was using I think he claimed he was using certain ancient Eastern methods to try right. and heal her with astral energy. Right. 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 So right. Like sitting there praying, hoping to. Yeah. Um, one of the ideas that I, that I find fascinating that's, that's part of the Gurdjieff work that comes down through E.J. Gold. Have you heard of uh, E.J. Gold? Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you want to read a good book, read The Human Biological Machine as a Transformational Apparatus. That is like a Gurdjieff 101. How do we take the machine and turn it into uh, something different? Yeah. How do we yeah. develop this being? Another one of um, uh, Gold's books is called um, The Hidden Work. And it's about what he calls true prayer or prayer absolute. So this idea that prayer is not an admonition for something. Prayer is work by which you heal the Godhead through uh, your own self-denial. Hmm. Wow. Okay. Okay. And that prayer is the work of... And it, again, we're getting into this Christian mysticism, the idea that there's something absolute that and and that man is missing the truth um but that that's not entirely a bad thing and and um that that abuts the idea of kunda buffer which i want to talk about um after we after we toast the idiots um so one of the things that gurdjieff would do uh at at the institute is that he would get hammered on our maniac um he had he had a reputation as a drinker and there's some criticism uh, here that, uh, you know, maybe this guy, he might've been an alcoholic. There was some daily drinking going on. Mm -hmm. Um, but one of his rituals would be to have these, these feasts, uh, and Gurdjieff over the course of the night would toast, um, the 21 idiots. And if your idiot was recognized, right, if you recognized an idiot that you are, um, you would have to stand and drink. (laughs) <laughs> um, <laughs> excellent <laughs> so i want to find the the toast to the idiots let me look here i'm yeah. looking oh this is i'm gonna bring this to party well if we ever have a party again yeah, um, yeah 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 well you know it's it's uh the gurdjieff drinking game 
Yeah. What yeah. is a, you gotta, you gotta remember too, this is before TV, you know, they have the radio, mm-hmm. uh, but we're, we're, this is a guy who's, uh, you know, gonna have some fun here. So the toast well, of the idiot. His father was an Ashok or, there you right? go. Yeah. You know, this is that, that tradition a little so, bit. I'm on a website that says the science of idiotism was introduced to the Western world <laughs> more than 90 years ago by yeah. Gurdjieff. Okay. Uh, the science of idiotism. Yes. Yeah. At first, okay. according to his students, it seemed to be simply an amusing mealtime entertainment resulting in a cosmic degree of drunkenness. But soon it became perhaps his strangest and most innovative method of teaching. He taught that eating with others was a fundamental key to evolution, a sacrament, and a life-affirming ritual never to be given short shrift or hurried up. I agree with this. Yeah, no, I like that. At his daily multi-course dinners, toasts were drunk to successive categories of idiot, always illuminating this, the specific idiocy of the person at the table being toasted. <laughs> all his guests, all guests were obliged to drink the toast in Armagnac or vodka. Gurdjieff's use of idiot had complex meanings that blended that of the ancient sages, so be oneself, so from the Greek idios, meaning one's own, with the slightly pejorative one we commonly know. So this is about knowing yourself. What kind of idiot are you? Mm. Um, And uh, Gurdjieff explained the ritual was drawn from an ancient esoteric practice. Uh, It vivified a teaching handed down from antiquity, which consisted in tracing the path of man's evolution from a state of nature to the realization of his spiritual potential. In other words, there are 21 gradations of reason from Mm. that of the ordinary person to that of, as Gurdjieff called it, our endlessness, that is God. In this hierarchy, even God is an idiot, albeit the unique idiot at level 21. (laughs) So to begin, each person would choose via intuition which idiot he or she is from the first 12. So I'm gonna read the first 12 idiots and then uh, you're gonna tell me which idiot you are. (laughs) Are you in? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I'm in. I'm in. Okay. I'm just nervous. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you nervous? I feel like I'm going to be all 12 of them. So. Oh, right, right, right. Well, now remember, we're, it's, the, it's in the 1920s. Yeah, I feel like I'm going to be all, I feel like I'm be all 12. <laughs> uh, Catherine Mansfield has, uh, has just died from tuberculosis, uh, tuberculosis. The money got screwed up, so she was buried in a pauper's grave. Uh, Gurdjieff is probably in a bad mood. There might have been some bad press. Uh, he, you know, he just finished yelling, to, yelling at one of the students, but it's time for dinner, and now you have to pick which idiot you are. <laughs> One, an ordinary idiot. Two, a super idiot. Three, an arch idiot. Four, a hopeless idiot. Five, a compassionate idiot. Six, a squirming idiot. Seven, a square idiot. Eight, a round idiot. Nine, a zigzag idiot. Ten, an enlightened idiot. Eleven, a doubting idiot. Twelve, a swaggering idiot. I think I'm a zigzag idiot. I'm just intuitively, yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I resonated with zigzag. Yeah. yeah. These days, I feel like I'm probably a swaggering idiot. Okay. These days. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'd like to say I was a compassion idiot, a, a compassionate idiot, but, mm-hmm. you know, some days maybe I am. Now, you have to remember, they're toasting all through these 21 right. toasts. <laughs> right, right, right. Right. So, I mean, this goes on, right? So, yeah. idiots 17 through 21. So, I, I, I'm going to read. So, it's 13 is the born idiot. 14 is the patented idiot. 15 is the psychopathic idiot. Mm. 16 is the polyhedral idiot. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Do you see what I mean about yeah. this being hilarious? Yeah. <laughs> there's a, there's a quality of just yeah. outright bizarre humor here. Yeah. Um, Gurdjieff uh, placed himself as idiot number 17. So okay. we're into 17 through 21 are, are a spiritual hierarchy, right? Okay. Yeah. Reflecting progressive gradations of objective reason. So now we're into the black belts of the idiots. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 18 uh, represented the highest development a human being could reach. Uh, but that idiot had to first voluntarily descend from 17 back to one and then b- make his way back up. Oh, now, of course, man. you have to imagine people are getting drunk by now. They're talking yeah. about God and idiots. Yeah. Um, idiots 19 and 20 were reserved for the sons of God. And then 21 was the unique idiot. Okay. God himself. Wow. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had Armagnac? I have not had Armagnac, and I was going to ask you, what is that exactly? It is a, it is like cognac. It's a type okay. of, uh, I guess it's a brandy or a, a whiskey of some sort, uh, but it's from a particular region. Okay, um, let me look it up. I have had it. Uh, I'm not uh, not imbibing these days, but it's yeah. uh, it is a type of brandy produced in the Armagnac region of Gascony in the southwest mm-hmm. of France. It it will peel paint. Is that right? Yeah, oh, yeah. Strong stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. okay. It'll knock you out. All right. Um, so, so, yeah, Gurdjieff wasn't screwing around. Armagnac, I, I thought that was going to be like an aperitif or something. but No, no, said, no, no. This is the hard stuff. Okay. Um, so, I'm, I'm really glad we got to toast uh, the idiots here. So, we've arrived uh, into the, the middle of the 20s. So, it's the interwar period. He goes to North America, picks up some students there. Um, he returns in 20, I wonder what he made of America. I'm sure there's some writing on it. Yeah. Yeah. He, he talks about it in, in Bezalbub's tales to his grandson. Can just imagine this guy landing in New York, what he would make of it. Folks Mm. at this time, they were trying to understand human nature and what had just happened with the great war. And, uh, so very curious to think of, of Gurdjieff kind of wandering around park Avenue, what that, what that must've looked like. Hmm. Um, he was driving alone in 1924, and this is one of the first uh, two major car accidents, um, from Paris to Fontainebleau, um, and he had a near-fatal car accident. Hmm. Um, he, his wife and his mother nursed him back, very painful recovery. They said he wouldn't be able to do it. Uh, hmm. This was a case of, like, this guy's done for. Hmm. This is another example of his kind of – they call him, again, I think it's like the trickster saint or something like that. He, he did have powers. There was a certain kind of – you could kind of almost imagine him just lying in bed, convalescing, maybe with some morphine, calling in astral energy to, right. to heal himself. You know? <laughs> sure, yeah. There's definitely yeah. like, you know, cape shit happening here with Gurdjieff. <laughs> um, he disbanded the Institute. Um, and then he turned his attention to uh, writing Beelzebub's Tales, okay. which was the first part of his um, three-part series, All and Everything. He was writing in Armenian and uh, Russian. Hmm. Um, and I have to just stop and, uh, and talk a little bit about uh, Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson and how crazy this book is. Yeah, I want to hear more about this thing. It sounds oh, like- I mean, it is like a, it's like a flying tapestry of kind of wisdom and psychosis and jokes and weird stories. And did, it just goes on come, and on. Mm-hmm. Did he originate the term Beelzebub? No, I don't think so. Uh, Basilev just literally means Lord of the Flies. Okay. Uh, Yeah, I just don't. I'm wondering where that came from originally. I wonder if it's a Knowlton thing. Yeah, but all means Lord and Zabub means flies. I don't Mm -hmm. think he originated it. Um, 
Yeah, fascinating. So the All and Everything trilogy includes meetings with remarkable men, which was published after he died, and Life is Real Only Then When I Am, which was privately printed in the 70s. So really, this is the only book that that um, that came out in his in his lifetime. So it was intended as a study tool for the fourth way. Uh, and <laughs> it's included in some, it says Martin Seymour Smith included it in the 100 most influential books ever written um, with the comment that it is the most convincing fusion of Eastern and Western thought to have yet been seen. Oh, so, okay. so yeah. some credibility to it outside of the, you know, Gurdjieff school. Yeah, yeah. again, it, 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 more people are into this than you think. If you start to bring it up, it's like you, you'd be surprised who, who is into this stuff. Um, so it uses the framing device of the musings of an extraterrestrial known as Beelzebub, who shares a name with the demon of the same name. <laughs> <laughs> ah, yes, just to make things clear. <laughs> so, you know, he's trying to throw you off. Yeah, it's not, yeah. And you pick this book up and, and people in your life, you know, who are maybe a little more normie are like, yeah. what are you, what? What right. are you doing? Yeah, well, and even if you tell him, like, well, the character is, it's the same name as a demon, but it's not real. Like, even that explanation is right. Ridiculous. Did you see this story going around that apparently Lucifer has become a, a common name that's they're naming, people are naming their kids Lucifer now? <laughs> I have not heard that. It's on the Bird website. I don't know. I don't know if I trust it. Uh, um, that's a little, somebody out there is doing it, I'm sure. So that's. And we are on the Bird website at Art of Dark Pod, um, at us. Art of Dark Pod. Yeah, you can yeah. find us. Um, yeah. So Bezobub, this alien, is writing to his grandson, Hussein, uh, as they travel through space toward Bezelbub's home planet, Karatas, hmm. on the spaceship Karnak. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So this as is the. Do. Right. <laughs> and Bezelbub recounts the adventures um, and travails of Bezelbub, of himself, among the three brained beings, humans, on the <laughs> planet Earth. So hmm. this is an alien describing what these creatures are like on Earth. So he details human history, custom, and the psychology of humanity through mm. through Gurdjieff's um, yeah. theories. Very, mm. very funny, very difficult, uh, and um, extraordinarily uh, clever and long. Uh, yeah, you said thirteen hundred pages, right? Absolutely, yeah. yes. Yeah. I mean, and it's just you know, I'm looking here. It's you know, minor characters and historical figures mentioned: Leonardo da Vinci, Pythagoras. Uh, Darwin, Ignatius, Mesmer, various mm. angels, various <laughs> archangels. <laughs> it's, it's a challenging thing. Um, and then there's this idea of like unknown words. And he would, so throughout the book, Gurdjieff uh, gave certain meanings to many of his original words, tr- such as triamazic. Kamno, the law of three, and Heptapara Parshanak, the law of seven. Mm. Uh, just wild. And he was trying to come up with like, he was definitely pushing language to its very um, ends. And so he didn't even have words to describe these things, but he was describing like the feeling of self-satisfaction from leading others astray. <laughs> right? You almost imagine there's like a German word to describe right, this. Right, right, right. Yeah. The calm self-contentment in the use of what is not personally deserved. <laughs> yeah, that's a, yeah. Yeah. The irresistible inclination to destroy the existence of other breathing creatures. <laughs> yeah. Um, that, ooh, that's a right. good book, book title. 
almost. There's even, so I'm on the Wikipedia about this, and it even says difficulty of the text. There's a whole section devoted to this. <laughs> Just to the difficulty of it. Yes, yeah. right. So Gurdjieff yeah. went to great lengths to add layer upon layer of complexity to the book. At yeah. times dry, long-winded, or seemingly ridiculous, Gurdjieff also added a number of long words and phrases which appear often throughout the text. Many times, the definition of these words is given later, <laughs> which functionally necessitates more than one reading of the text. Right, right, right. So yeah, very fun. Trying to loop you back through it multiple times, as you said early on. Yeah, absolutely. So we're again we're dealing with this uh, this tricky fellow. Um, I want to read from the very beginning of it, and I think I did pull this up earlier. What do you think, Brad? Are you still a uh, Are you still a Gurdjieffin? Are, are, are you on board? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I still am. You know, I, I've questioned the literary merits of this Beelzebub book, but I haven't read it, so you know. Um, I might be I might be blown away. <laughs> Let me see if I can find the the very beginning. Oh, it's at at holybooks.com. You can find the PDF. I'm sure Gurdjieff would would probably not think that the book is holy. Mm. Yeah, right. So this is I found it right. So here it is. We're in Beelzebub's Tales. Oh, and it starts with friendly advice. Uh, yeah. Very funny. So this is the arousing of thought. This is chapter one. And this, if you, if you decide to read Gurdjieff, this is what you're in for. Again, if it's not to your taste, you can read uh, E.J. Gold, uh, if you're interested in the, in the concepts of the work, or Ospensky, you could read um, In Search of the Miraculous. Uh, if you're interested in Gurdjieff biography, there are a ton, there must be a hundred books written by people who were in touch with Gurdjieff about their time with Gurdjieff in the work. My, really? yes. It, it seems like everybody who met Gurdjieff wrote a book about meeting Gurdjieff. Huh. Uh, I really impartial to, uh, to our life with Mr. Gurdjieff from the, the departments. Um, but here's Mr. G himself beginning his, um, his magnum opus. Among all the convictions formed in my common presence during my responsible peculiarly <laughs> peculiarly composed life, there's one unshakable conviction that people, whatever the degree of development of their understanding and whatever the form taken by the factors present in their individuality for engendering all kinds of ideals, always and everywhere on the earth feel the imperative need on beginning anything new to pronounce aloud, or if not aloud, at least mentally, that particular invocation, understandable to even the most ignorant person, which has been formulated in different ways in different epochs and in our day is expressed in the following words, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, amen. That is why I now also, in setting forth on this venture, quite new for me, namely authorship, begin, to uh, begin by pronouncing this invocation and pronounce it not only aloud, but even very distinctly and, as the ancient Tulisites used to say, with a fully manifested intonation. Of course, only to the extent permitted by data already formed in my whole presence and thoroughly rooted in it for such a manifestation data, by the way, which are generally formed in man's nature during his preparatory years and which later during his responsible life determine the character and vivifyingness of such an intonation. Having begun this, I can now be quite at ease. <laughs> And I'm almost done. Yeah. And should even, according to contemporary notions of religious morality, be completely assured that from now on, everything in this new venture of mine will proceed, as is said, like a pianola. In any case, this is the way I have begun. And how the rest will go, I can only say, as the blind man put it, we shall see. 
1300 pages of that yeah 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 it's charming there's a, there is a certain charm to it for sure um in his attitude the whole blind man as the blind man says we shall see and, and all that and that yeah but you yeah tell he's doing- uh he, he he doesn't mind taking up some space does he he's, no uh, yeah, yeah yeah i i think of that book as like a fine cathedral of thought it's just mm. so bizarre. It's been a long time since I've, I've read it. Um, I do want to get into, uh, I know we're going a little long here, but I hope that's all right. I, okay. I do want to get into one of the key ideas in Bezelbub's Tales to his grandson. And it's this notion, it's really central to the book. It's this notion that the three-brained creatures on the planet Earth used to have an organ called the Kunda Buffer. Mm. But the Kunda Buffer no longer exists physically. It, it would be like a, like a little tail or something, right? Okay, yeah. But it exists psychologically. Okay. And the Kunda buffer is this organ that prevents us from seeing the world as it is. Because if we did, we would go mad. Yeah, I buy that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I find this notion, and it comes up again and again and again in the book. Yeah, um, no, that's, I'm a, I, I'm, I kind of like having a name for it. That's that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah the Kunda buffer. So, yeah, we don't have it physically, but psychically or psychologically, yes. Um, in the human being, and this is just from a website I found, uh, Gnostic Esoteric Study Workaids.blogspot.com. Uh, oh, yes. Right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is if you study, if you look up Gurdjieff, you are just you're lost. You're mm-hmm. down a you're down a rabbit hole very quickly. Um, there, there is some excellent content on YouTube. If you go, uh, you, you, can, you can listen to some of the, the work. You can listen to some of the lectures, people rereading the sort of reading the lectures. Um, what does the Kunderbuffer do? In the human being, it acts upon our psyche, hypnotizing us, making us to believe the arguments from the ego that are not true or at best half true. Mm-hmm. It also participates in the creation of psychological eyes and it is uh, the element in us that produces fantasy and allows us to continue with fantasy and keep believing in uh, as if they were real or unrealistic and untrue imaginings. In other words, it hypnotizes us, lulling us to sleep, causing our consciousness, which is the only element in us that can perceive reality, to sleep and sleep deeply. Mm. It buffers our psyche from reality. Yeah, yeah. Pretty heavy idea. It is. That's like, uh, it's got some overlaps with the whole idea of like the calcified pineal gland, right? The mm-hmm. third eye is being closed. Yes. Some overlap there. Interesting. Interesting. Yes. Well, uh, again, in the interest of time, I'm going to kind of flash forward here. Uh, he, you know, he's reached out to America. He, he visits the United States a number of times. Um, the the mansion the priory ran into debt it was shut down in 32 he's not quite the same man that he was uh, after that first car accident certainly took him out a bit um he did form a new teaching group in paris that was called the rope in the 30s and it was composed of only women many of them writers several lesbians uh and he was acquainted with gertrude stein Oh, okay. Um, here. And it was probably around this time uh, that he met uh, Crowley. And okay. let, me, let me see if I can find uh, the story of their meeting because it's quite, um, 
fascinating. Of course, the two men, for those who don't know, Aleister Crowley was the wickedest man alive, quote unquote, the, uh, the probably the greatest occultist of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Also very crazy eyes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Compelling, <laughs> compelling looking figure for sure. Yeah. So I have to just pause here and do a little bit of a, uh, of a side story here. So uh, let's see here. Here's the story of Crowley meeting Gurdjieff. Crowley knew the town of Fontainebleau well. In 24, he'd spent a tormented period there. And every, every period for Crowley was tormented mm-hmm. um, in an attempt to cure himself of heroin addiction. Yeah. Uh, the Great Beast was a familiar figure in Paris, expatriate circles, and uh, not the person recounting the story met him in the capital while himself staying at the Priory. Uh, Crowley's interest was aroused either by a general occult curiosity or by Gurdjieff's reputation as a specialist in curing drug addiction. And he mm. soon afterward turned up at Fontainebleau, where uh, he was the object of some amazement. Crowley mm. was preceded by a reputation. Yeah. To one of the inmates... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the wickedest man in the world seemed overfed and inoffensive with the exception of his almost colorless eyes, the antipodes of Gurdjieff's he- heavy gaze. The published accounts of Crowley at the Priory speak only of a brief visit and a vaguely sinister impression, not recorded that Crowley spoke to one of the children present, but his son, whom he was teaching to be a devil. Gurdjieff got, uh, got and spoke to the boy, who thereupon took no, f- no further notice of Crowley. But the magician's visit was extensive and his confrontation with Gurdjieff of a more epic nature. Crowley arrived for a whole weekend and spent his time, uh, like any other visitor at the Priory, being shown the grounds and the activities in progress, listening to Gurdjieff's music and his oracular conversation. Apart from some circumspection, Gurdjieff treated him like any other guest until the evening of his departure. After dinner on Sunday night, Gurdjieff led the way out of the dining room with Crowley, followed by the body of pupils who had been at the meal. Crowley made his way toward the door and turned to take his leave of Gurdjieff, who by this time was some way up the stairs to the second floor. Mr. You go, Gurdjieff inquired. Crowley assented. You have been guest. A fact which the visitor could hardly deny. Now you go. You are no longer guest. Crowley, no doubt wondering whether his host had lost his grip on reality and was wandering in the semantic wilderness, humored his mood by indicating that he was on his way back to Paris. But Gurdjieff, having made the point that he was not violating the canons of hospitality, changed on the instant into the embodiment of righteous anger. You filthy, he stormed. You dirty inside. Never again you set foot in my house. From his vantage point on the stairs, he worked himself up into a rage, which quite transfixed his watching pupils. Crowley was stigmatized as the sewer of creation uh, and um, was taken apart and trotted into the mire. Finally, he was banished in the style of East Lynn by a Gurdjieff. Uh, in fine histrionic form. White-faced and shaking, the great beast crept back to Paris with his tail between his legs. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I just think this is just a couple of probably egomaniacs kind of, you know, a little bit, a little bit. Feeling each other out. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty good though. I do like the move of like, all right, so you're not a guest anymore. Like there's, there's something pretty cool about that if that is how that went down. That's uh, yeah. yeah. It's almost that's, like you have to let the vampire swagger. out. You got to tell the vampire, like, hey, you know, you're yeah. not, yeah, yeah, you're not welcome, welcome anymore. anymore. Now I'm gonna yeah. put a stake through your heart. That's right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Gurdjieff, Gurdjieff definitely had a relationship with uh, with drugs um, of his own. The ritual drinking was definitely a, a big part of it, and that led to the uh, the second car accident. Um, this was uh, this is after World War II. Um, let me let me find the car accident here. Uh, okay, 
So they're, they're getting through uh, World War II. Um, after the war, he tried to connect with his pupils. People are reluctant. Um, he suffered a second, second car accident in 1948. Again, he made an unexpected recovery. And huh. uh, quoting someone, uh, I was looking at a dying man. Even this is not enough to express it. It was a dead man, a corpse that came out of the car, and yet it walked. I was shivering mm -hmm. like someone who sees a ghost. Oh. With iron-like tenacity, he managed to gain his room, where he sat down and said, now all organs are destroyed, must make new. Then he turned to Bennett, smiling, tonight you come dinner, I must make body work. As he spoke, a great spasm of pain shook his body and blood gushed from an ear. Bennett thought, he has a cerebral hemorrhage. He won't kill himself if he continues to force his body to move. But then he re reflected, he has to do this. If he allows his body to stop moving, he will die. He has power over his body. Ah. So he recovers from this second car accident. And critics will say he was drunk and yeah, driving right. drunk and he hit a tree. Right. And, but his pupils say, ah, but he, he recovered and he right. had mastery right. over his own organs. And so there's this right. whole, ooh, you know. Hmm. So he... He finalized plans for the publication of Beelzebub, uh, made two trips to New York. And these are not small trips either. This guy got around. Yeah, um, yeah. He visited the, the cave paintings at Lascaux. Oh, and he, cool. he interpreted them. Sure, of <laughs> so course. <he's>, yeah. <laughs> he was the guy, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. This, yeah. this means that and this means right. this. Right. Uh, and then finally, uh, the great trickster saint, the great sly one, the, the master of the Enneagram and of the sacred dances, uh, the person who had survived the Bolsheviks managed to escape uh, uh, Europe, uh, you know, or, or, or escape the East and make it into the West, uh, survived World War One, World War Two, mm. and all the rest of it uh, died at the American Hospital um, in France in Neuilly-sur-Seine. His funeral took place at the St. Alexandre Nevsky Russian Orthodox Cathedral mm. in Paris, and he is buried in the cemetery at Avon near Fontainebleau. Huh. Uh, there is no evidence or documents. Um, there are no evidence, uh, whatever it is, or documents certifying anybody as his child, but the mm -hmm. following seven people are believed to be his children. <laughs> <laughs> this is all coming from that school he had that was just women. That was, mm, nah, I think it was no? throughout okay. the years. So let okay. me read this. Well, he was married. Mm -hmm. You said early on he had been married at least at one point. Yes, so. he was married. And I, you know, I, it's not entirely clear to me um, how that worked or how that functioned. We're definitely dealing with an arch patriarch here. This, yeah, yeah. This guy is over the top. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how, how, how well he would do today, but we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. But this is fascinating. I'm going to read the children. Yeah. Cynthia Sophia Dushka Haworth. Uh, her mother was dancer Jesmyn Howarth. She went on to found the Gurdjieff Heritage Foundation. Hmm. Sergi Chavardain, his mother was Lily Galamnian Chavardain. Andre, born to a mother known only as Georgie. <laughs> Eve Taylor, the mother was one of his followers, followers, American socialite Edith Ansley Taylor. Nikolai Stiemval, whose mother was... Uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, somebody right. else's wife. Right, right. Michelle DeSaltzman, whose mother was Jean DeSaltzman. Mm -hmm. uh, he later became head of the Gurdjieff Foundation. Yeah. And then Svetlana Hinzenberg. None of them have his name, by the way. Right, right, uh, right. And uh, daughter of Olga Ivanovna Hinzenberg and a future stepdaughter of Frank Lloyd Wright. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, huh. 
And that is the life and death and some of the ideas of the great yeah. George Ivanovich Gurdjieff. Well, that was a whirlwind, Kevin. That was, uh, <laughs> that was good stuff. Not yeah, Like I said, I'm kind of like a Gurdjieffian a little bit, I feel mm-hmm. like. I'm a little intimidated by him. You know, and I, it's, I feel like maybe this is part of his mystique. It's hard at the end of that to come away with what he was exactly. Absolutely. You know? he, was a, he was a trickster. He yeah. was a confidence man. Mm-hmm. He was a guru. He was an mm-hmm. author. He was a psychologist, mm-hmm. uh, a hypnotist. He was a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He was singular too, though. There was nobody yeah. quite like him wandering through his No, his there era. isn't. There isn't. And, and the, the other people you try to name that were like him are only aspects of him, you know? Like mm. Ram Dass comes to mind, but so does Rasputin. It's like a very ah. strange, yeah. That's quite a, yeah, that's quite a good sort of comparison, possibly. Yeah. 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 Well, so the, these ideas do resonate and you'll read Bezelbub's Tales and you'll read some of the other authors and they're very, they're very useful in a funny way. I'm very particular um, uh, about this notion of the Enneagram and this idea of applying shocks <laughs> to shift up and down octaves in terms of your consciousness. Mm. The idea that he, every process takes place and can be mapped on something like the Enneagram and a shock is required to move along the process. The metaphor he liked to use is that of a meal. You have mm-hmm. to, one, have the desire, desire for a meal. Well, that's easy, mm-hmm. right? We all have hunger. Two, mm-hmm. you have to conceptualize the meal. Who's going to be there? Who's invited? What's the meal going to be? Three, you have to get the supplies. Four, you have to, etc. cetera. Yeah. And, and it, the ideas are actually quite alchemical. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea of applying shocks at, at different levels, but you can, you can do this in terms of your own development. Right, uh, right. Yeah. It's, huh. These are very, very rough, basic ideas. I'm just trying sure. to give a, an overview, and I'm well, not yeah, a master sounds, of the, yeah. Right, and it sounds like they, he, you know, probably was something that he would talk about for hours, some singular step of this. Yes. You know, probably a lot of permutations. It's interesting. And a lot of it does seem, I mean, no idea is totally original, but a lot of it does seem like it's his in a strange way. I mean, I guess if you pull enough pieces from different sources together and put it into something coherent, then it kind of is your idea. But yeah, I don't see, it doesn't seem like it's the same stuff Osho was saying, or, you know, name some other cult leader. It's, it's, he's not really a cult leader. I don't think. Uh, Yeah. I think it's a case of kind of, you know, where are you going to meet him? in your own Mm. development. You're going to kind of get what you need out of it. You mentioned Osho. I'm reading here right now. According to Osho, the Gurdjieff system is incomplete, Mm. uh, is drawing from dervish sources, inimical inimical to Kundalini. Mm. Um, mm, Who knows? There are a lot of people mm, are not, they're not huge fans of him. He certainly divides people. Yeah, Um, I could see that for sure. Yeah. The dances are lovely. I mean, they're really, they're really something else. I mean, again, you know, uh, meetings with remarkable men, uh, if you, even if you can't sort of, if you're not that into the film, you know, fa- uh, fast forward to the end and watch the dances. They're pretty striking. Once you see them, they'll kind of always stay with you. I mm. like this idea a lot of the, uh, the sleeping man and how you have to awaken different um, sort of uh, 
you, different levels of consciousness and what you may think is awakeness is not awakeness. Um, mm -hmm. And this, the importance of bringing yourself back to the body. I like this idea. There's a quote from him saying, freedom is first of all, freedom from identification. Mm. We identify with our eyes. I am a podcaster. I am right. a, etc. I am a blah, blah, blah. I think that's so wonderful because yeah. he's trying to break down our, our obscene fixation with language that we have. Mm -hmm. I think in the, in the West, we have a tendency, tendency to think that um, thoughts are, are words, right? Mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They're not. They're, they're, yeah. Yeah. And the identification thing is interesting because that, you know, I think there's an argument, argument to be made that like over emphasis on the identification mechanism is part of what's going on with all of the sort of social and political polarization the right this I person am is a, a that i am a this the, i they, am a democrat person, right mm -hmm. yeah they this person is a that so if they think this and like um yeah yeah i think that's a real problem if you can you know in the the first step to breaking free breaking other people free of that in your head i would think is trying to break yourself free of it in your own head you know so mm. Yeah, so I could see that being pretty yeah. valuable, really. And, and getting out of your head, getting into the mm -hmm. body, getting yeah. into the feelings, the, these other these other centers, which are equally valid, equally mm -hmm. important. Like mm -hmm. that carriage without horses isn't going anywhere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, now, there's one final Gurdjieffan idea that I have to get to because I mentioned it earlier. Yeah. Uh, and then I'll ask you the question um, we always ask near the end here. But yeah. I love this idea that man is food for the moon. So I'm on a website called Gnostic Warrior right now. Ah, yes. And Classic Gnostic Warrior. Dot <laughs> <laughs> com. Shout out. <laughs> yeah. Food for the moon was first introduced into Western culture by the Russian mystic Gurdjieff. Uh, it's an infamous concept. It's part of his fourth way. This is where the fourth way stuff where you, you drift off into metaphor and allegory and it's hard to know how literal is he being, but I think it's, right. it's very helpful. So the idea of food for the moon deals with the paranormal aspect of the slavery of humanity in which it's organic energy serves as food for some uh, cosmic entity we know as the moon and its parasites that we cannot see at another level of existence, the paranormal, mm -hmm. the fourth dimension. Mm -hmm. Gurdjieff said the moon is actually a fragment of this earth, which must now constantly maintain the moon's existence. Everything living on the earth, people, animals, plants, is food for the moon. The moon is a huge mm -hmm. living, living being feeding upon all that lives and grows on the earth. And, and Gurdjieff stated that it was only through self-remembering that it was possible for an individual to escape being eaten from the moon. Oh. Huh. <laughs> well, Interesting. what can he mean by this? I mean, it depends. Well, so there's a lot of interpretations about what the moon is in all mm. kinds of different, like, intellectual, symbolic disciplines. You know, mm. so you know, the moon has been described as sort of uh, the dark mother archetype. The moon has been described um, in some books of um, Christian hermeticism. The moon is, is there's a lot of emphasis on the fact that the moon is reflective and pale. So it's like reflected intelligence. It's a symbol of, of kind of a Gurdjieffian idea of, of, of basically 
um, when you look out into the world, what is actually reflected back to you is is how you interpret things is is part of the process of an intellectual interpretation, mm-hmm. and therefore it's at least two degrees off of reality because it's not only you projecting out to it, but it's hitting this thing and it's bouncing back to you. So everything is distorted essentially. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. There's a lot of, there's a lot of places you can go and the moon's always frequently described as feminine. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what to make of that. What do you make of it? Well, I think that he's trying to draw our attention to the vicissitudes of life, the way that the moon changes uh, one day it's in, it appears in the sky bright. The other day it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it doesn't, it's waxing, mm-hmm. it's waning, it's mm-hmm. ever changing, but it's also somehow constant. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how literal he was being. Uh, so I'm going to leave us yeah. with this before I ask you the final question. And this is from in search of the miraculous, um, the Uspensky book. Uh, this is just two short paragraphs and it's about the end goal of the work. Um, if a man develops in himself a permanent eye that can survive a change in external conditions, it can survive the death of the physical body. The whole secret is that one cannot work for a future life without working for this one. In working for a life, a man works for death, or rather for immortality. Therefore, work for immortality, if one may so call it, cannot be separated from general work. In attaining the one, a man attains the other. A man may strive to be simply for the sake of his own life's interests. I'm going to say that one more time. A man may strive to be simply for the sake of his, of his own life's interests. Hmm. Through this alone, he may become a mortal. If he becomes the master of his life, he may become the master of his death. Hmm. Yeah, here, here. Okay. Mm. I'm, I'm, well, I'm on board. Yeah, yeah. Hey, you know, have a have a look at some of the Grigia stuff. This yeah, wasn't no, meant to be a proselytizing. I just, I, I think do. some of these ideas are interesting. I, I do too. No, and and, and uh, I think you did a great job of g- giving us the bio, giving us a picture of the man, and then and then giving us the ideas without. There seems the the ideas seem to be so voluminous and sort of esoteric that it it seems like you could chip away at it for a long time and not get anywhere. But I feel like you gave us a great one on one. So just trying to do that. It's a really syncretic system. And when you yeah. listen to it, if you're a student of the occult uh, to any degree, you're going to be like, oh, that's like alchemy. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, that's like uh, uh, Sufism. Uh, that's a little bit of uh, Christianity. Oh, that's this and that. And you're going to kind of, this is a lot like Kabbalah uh, yeah. or, or the tree of life or tarot. You're going to pick yeah. up all these things. So Gurdjieff definitely made his own system and he sold it successfully right. to some very rich and famous people. Yeah. And he lived Dang. in a mansion outside of Paris. And hey, why not? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. what would he be doing now today, Brad? Oh, what do what you think? What would he be doing? Mr. G, what's he doing? What's Mr. G doing? Well, gosh, hmm. you know, I think he's, see, I don't think you could pull off the like guru circuit as easily anymore because you can't sort of just appear out of nowhere. Or yeah, but look, at, there's a lot of this nonsense though yeah. too, man. Would he be a, <laughs> he'd be a thought leader. He'd be a, yeah. Yeah, oh, man. some sort see, of a. I think he would, uh, I think he would be put off by Silicon Valley to some extent. For some reason, I kept imagining him as like a jujitsu or like martial arts. Like, okay. you know what I mean? Like yeah. a super intense, um, super hardcore first day, you know, is, is first day is digging ditch, a ditch. And Hi, then sensei. Right, right. And then you're able to learn a rear naked choke or whatever. Um, so I feel like that, but that's too much because 
I, I do like this, this comparison to maybe like a martial arts instructor, right? Yeah. It's Cobra Kai. It's not about right. just right. fighting and well, right. Cobra Kai is, Kai is about being badass, right? right. But right. the other, the other team, right? Miyagi, yeah. Miyagi-Do, you know, yeah. right? It's, yeah. oh, develop the spirit. Yeah. Right. There's a little bit of that too, yeah. but Gurdjieff yeah. clearly had some fun too. They're all getting hammered on Armaniac right. and vodka right. and toasting right. the idiots and all right. the rest. Right. Right. What yeah. do you think you'd be doing? Hmm. Uh, you know, he could be out in California. There are pockets, pockets of this stuff. Jared Leto has a cult right now, doesn't he? Oh, yes, he does. <laughs> you know, I yeah. mean, you know, or he could be he could be in some foreign country. That I think that's the other thing, too, is that Gurdjieff would be one of these guys who comes out of nowhere and suddenly lands in New York and has has his own institute. He right, could. Right, There's a right. lot of hooey and nonsense out yeah, there that, yeah, that people yeah. are people are. Yeah, selling. he might. That could be the other thing. He might have some kind of think tanky uh, <laughs> institute in New York mm-hmm. that's based on you know. Well, it makes me wonder like what he would think about his attitude would be to like com- communication technology now. Right. Like if if he would hop on board with that, or if he'd think it was sort of destructive to the work or what, because it's. You know, in his time, what there's the telephone, basically radio. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. He he had some very amusing writing about writing and okay. how terrible most of it is, and how it's all just <laughs> psychological and masturbatory, and how writers <laughs> just celebrate one another mindlessly, <laughs> and and just they all just puff each other up, and it's just a whole bunch sure. of nothing. You know? Right, I right. Mean, he was. <laughs> <laughs> he could be very uh, acerbic. Yeah, well, I like that. I, I, that's one thing I, I, you know, your spiritual leader ought to be a little acerbic or how are you going to take them seriously, right? They got to call I, bullshit every once in I a while. I think we just rattled off seven children by seven different women. <laughs> <laughs> so there's also like a, like kind of a, he could be like a, he could be like a rapper or something. <laughs> I mean, no, he's got the he's got the Henny, he's got the yeah, Armagnac. That's that's true. Yeah, he's telling stories he's all night. Living in a, yeah. living in a mansion outside of Paris. Oh, I mean, yeah, and I'm sure you could yeah. turn toast at the Twenty One Idiots into that's some battle rap. You could you could turn that into something. Yeah, <laughs> Gurdjieff yeah. the battle rapper. That's that's not where I expected to land on this episode of uh, Art of Darkness. Uh, Brad, where can people find you? Uh, I'm on mostly on Twitter, Brad Kelly, just B R A D K E L O Y. And uh, my website, Brad Kelly esque, E S Q U E, where I got uh, short stories and some essays on the tarot and uh, a link to my book. Buy my book for crying, crying out loud. Yeah, House of Sleep, uh, buy it. And I'm Kevin Kautzman. I'm on Twitter. It's K A U T Z M A N, Kevin Kautzman. And we are Art of Dark Pod. Support right. our Patreon. We're going to come up with some pretty cool stuff, including yeah. a Kafka is a hack uh, or was a hack t-shirt. <laughs> I think it's going to be the first bit of Art of yeah. Darkness merch that we make. Uh, but we have to do the Kafka episode yeah. first. Yeah. Brad, what's next for you? I know you're up oh, next. Oh, yeah. Kafka's coming up in not too long. But next for me is a little bit of a left turn somewhat. Uh, Junior Kimbrough, legendary Mississippi blues man. Uh who basically nobody's ever heard of and everybody who has heard of thinks is a genius. So, um, should be a trip. Um, yeah. And, uh, we're going to play around with, uh, I think sampling some music. I don't think we can do proper, a proper junior Kimbrough, um, episode without a little bit of music. So I think it's fair use 
likely, or I'll say that it is, and uh, we'll find some, you know, 30-second, one-minute clips to uh, to throw in for that. So Awesome. Kimbrough. And I'm going to play some of our uh, our good buddy Dan Slater's music here at the end. Oh, uh, great. You can find us yeah. at artofdarkpod.com, where we talk about the dark side of creatives, artists, and people who created culture. I'm going to, I'm going to uh, leave us with one final quote from, uh, from Gurdjieff. Uh, Two things in life are infinite, the stupidity of man and the mercy of God. Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> and the sacred law of Parshanak. Well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Later. All right.